to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at some verses that, that may be very familiar. Acts chapter 2. If you're taking notes, uh, the title of our time in the Word is called Stronger Together. If you're visiting with us, we are normally in uh, the book of Galatians on Sunday, although we're getting close to finishing. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put one in your hand as well. Should be marked Acts chapter 2. We'll get back into Galatians, but uh, as of today, we're going to look at this brief time in Acts chapter 2. Stronger together if you're taking notes. And a couple of things here, real quick. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, now all who believe were together. And that's where this whole stronger together uh, is coming from. It's not something I made up. Uh, it is something that the Lord makes clear that he wants a church that's unified and together. Um, one of my favorite quotes is African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's the same way in a family. If mom or dad runs ahead of the whole family, they can get a lot done, but they're not going to teach the kids how to do it. So we have to go together. We want to go far. And when you go together, you actually don't fatigue everybody. You, take, you pick each other up and you move as a group. The children of Israel had to move. All 12 tribes had to move out together. One tribe couldn't say, hey, we're going to be halfway to China. The rest of you all catch up if you can. We go together. And then when we connect, um, we, become, we, or sorry, we cannot become what we need to be by remaining what we are. We have to grow every year. I'm talking about spiritually. Whatever God does numerically uh, in a family, you saw in the video, someone said they were growing, right? That's when a family grows. That's a work of God, right? Remember, sometimes in the Bible, people couldn't get pregnant. So growth is always a work of God. It's not something we strive for. It's something we just serve the Lord, and he does what he does. But we can't stay as we were. I need to mature in the Lord this year. You need to mature in the Lord. Our ministries need to mature. We cannot stay the same place. I need to be more loving next year than this year, more full of grace. So that's what a work that God wants to do. So with that in mind, look at uh, Acts chapter 2. Now, in the... Um, the first part of Acts chapter 2, just by way of understanding, the church had been praying for about 10 days, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, those that were saved already had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do a study on the Holy Spirit uh, very soon here. They had already had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but the baptism or the immersion of the Spirit on the church and the immersion of the Spirit on the body as a whole would ignite the church being sent out. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. In other words, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit helps us from day to day, but the overflow of the Spirit helps us to charge forward, and that's what the Lord wants us to do. Now, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit's come, and then we see what takes place after people have gotten saved, and then the work starts to really uh, manifest itself in the body here. Starting in verse 40, and with many other words, he testified, he being Peter, Peter was... Uh, the first uh, to stand and preach. He's always the first in the list of the apostles. He's always the first one listed. For whatever reason, God kind of chose him to kind of be the initial pastor, if you will, the initial leader or bishop or overseer of the church. So he stands up and speaks, and it says, with many other words, he being Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. 
It was a perverse generation then, it's a perverse generation today. Then those who, were, uh, who gladly received this word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. What an altar call. 3,000? Wow. And, uh, the, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done among the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the work and the will of your spirit here amongst us this morning. We know whenever your word is read, you are well pleased. Now use it to minister and lead the rest of this time this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to go through 15 characteristics, and I'm going to do it brief, but I want you to have these, and if you, if you uh, are looking to have these written down, they'll be posted on our Facebook site, so if you don't get a chance to jot them all down, these 15 will be on the site. These are 15 characteristics of the work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in a surrendered church. And look at them. They're all right there in your Bible. The first one is, there is genuine repentance and obedience. This is in verse 40 and 41. What do we see take place? And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. The, first, the only way you can get saved is to obey the call of the gospel. The first thing is just say, yes, Jesus, I believe your words. Please save me. So there has to be obedience to the work of the gospel. But then it goes from there. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized. The very first step in obedience is to be baptized. If you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. It's the first step in discipleship. Without real repentance and obedience to the commands of Christ, there is no church. We all agree with that, right? If there's no obedience, there's no church whatsoever. If nobody followed the commands to be baptized, which is the first step in discipleship obedience, there would be no disciples. If there was no one baptized, there'd be no one disciples. Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them. Because if they weren't baptized, they couldn't possibly be disciples. Now, someone can get saved and not be baptized, but they can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, now, if you die before you could be baptized, like the thief on the cross, that's a moot point. That's covered. God understands that. But when we have the opportunity, if there's no disciples, then there's no heart for the lost. And if there's no heart for the lost, there's no re leaders raised up. There's no serving. So it all starts with genuine repentance and obedience. Equally, without repentance and obedience, there is no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We, we receive the Holy Spirit inside us with salvation. We receive the overflow of the Holy Spirit with obedience and surrender. These things come together. It invites the work of the Holy Spirit when we surrender. The next thing we see is they continued steadfastly, or uh, we could say committed. Uh, the word steadfastly in the Greek proskaterio. Proskaterio means, so proskaterio or steadfast or steadfastly, this word in the Greek means to be devoted or constant. Are you devoted and constant in the things of the Lord? To give unremitting care to. See, Jesus will someday look at us 
face to face, and he will say, this you gave unremitting care to, or this you did not give unremitting care to. You gave unremitting care to your hobby, but not to me. Yeah. Right? So these things, we will someday, just as sure as you're sitting here, we will someday have to stand before the Lord. And if you think standing before your boss at review time is a little bit tense, wait till you stand before the God of the universe, and he says, now let's take a look. He'll have loving eyes, but even if you have a loving boss, it still doesn't feel good. So he's going to look at us and say, did you give unremitting care? It also means to persevere and not faint. To persevere and not faint. See, the early church, they were all in on the priorities of God. They were living the very words and commands of Jesus to do what? To seek first the kingdom of God. First the kingdom of God. Everything else, God wants us to be able to laugh and do some things that are fun and stuff like that, but he wants us to seek first his will. The other things will be added. The next thing we see is they stayed in the word of God, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. Um, Pastor David Guzik, he's Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, and he also has a Bible commentary. Uh, he used to teach at the Bible college there in Germany as well. I love this quote from uh, Pastor David Guzik. Uh, and I believe and live by this one. He said, every pastor should seek to be unoriginal in the sense that we don't have our own doctrine but the apostles' doctrine. In that sense, I am glad I am unoriginal. We're going to keep preaching the word. I don't have any new fancy things, but we're going to preach exactly what the apostles preached 2,000 years ago in the scriptures. The apostles' doctrine was simply this. What was the apostles' doctrine? Well, one, they teach the old, taught the Old Testament, which already was in existence, same as Jesus did. That's uh, Genesis to Malachi, the Tanakh or the Old Testament. One, they taught the Old Testament because that was the only written word. The second, they taught what would become our New Testament, and what was that? Well, that was everything Jesus taught them in the three-year ministry. Where do we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the epistles? That all comes from the teaching of Jesus, right? So that was the apostles' doctrine. It was the old and the new testament, the old that was written, the new that was given to them by Jesus by his lips. In 1 Peter 2.2, 2, it says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow. I don't care how long you've been saved, you need to be able to have the word of God like a baby loves a bottle. That's what Peter said. Now, Peter would walk with Jesus, so he would know, Right? He walked with Jesus, and he said, we all have to be like newborn babies when it comes to the Word of God. We can't say, well, I've met Christians say, I don't need to read anymore because I already read the Bible. What? It's like saying, I don't need to breathe anymore because I breathed yesterday, right? We have to keep breathing in the Word. Next thing, uh, they had fellowship in various settings. Uh, the word fellowship, you may know this Greek word. You probably heard it before. It means koinonia. And it means to be in communion or to share in something, to share in something. God's called us to share in the work of Jesus, to be in communion in his body. Now, fellowship is essential to several things. It's fellowship is essential to building relationships. Uh, if you come and you hear the word of God, I'm so glad you come. I really am. And even if you leave every Sunday and bolt straight out, I'm still glad you come. But you'll never really take the next steps unless you get into fellowship. And that doesn't mean that's just on Sunday morning. We have other avenues to fellowship, and I hope you take advantage of them in 2017. 
Uh, but fellowship is essential to building relationships. It's essential to building friendships. It's essential to encouraging one another. Did you know people need encouragement even if they don't know they need encouragement? Even someone that doesn't, you know how they know it? When they get encouraged, they say, wow, I didn't realize how much I needed that. Sometimes you'll be walking around and, and you don't even know why you're a little bit down. And so all of a sudden someone encourages you and you say, wow, I feel better already. That's part of fellowship. People need this even if they don't think they need this. God knows it. That's the way he designed. He designed Adam and Eve to need each other. Right? That's the way it was from the very beginning. Fellowship. Encouraging one another. We need accountability. We need someone to say, how you doing? Are you reading the Bible? Because it actually spurs us on to the works that we're called to in the faith. Fellowship is a basic building block of discipleship. And we become like those we spend time with. That's why I want to spend time with spiritual and godly people, because I'll become more like them. Next thing, they kept communion, which is the Lord's Supper, and they had meals with one another. They, even though they were very close, it says right here in the, uh, after the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship and the Breaking of Bread, even so close to the death and resurrection of Jesus, I mean, Jesus hadn't been gone hardly any time at all, and the early church was still out of the gate, immediately observing his death and resurrection, just as he'd done on the night uh, of the Passover. But in addition to that, not only did they do that, and we call that the Lord's Supper or communion, you'll hear it called both, uh, they also shared meals together. Isn't it nice to have a dinner with someone? Some of you moms are saying, especially when the kids are being babysat, right? And we actually get to talk and think, you know, that kind of thing, right? I, I understand that because fellowship over a meal, for whatever reason, breaks dead silence that fellowship without a meal has a hard time doing. You ever notice that? If you want to get to know somebody, just go to lunch with them. I don't know how it works, but Jesus, he fed crowds all the time, didn't he? He kind of... Why do you think he kind of understood? Well, he created people, right? He would actually say, sit them down and let's feed them. Having meals together. I want you to think back at 26. How often did you have a meal with another believer in Christ? Well, I had meals with my wife or my husband. I'm talking about outside your own house. Make it a priority to have meals with people. Invite someone over. Go out to lunch. And it doesn't matter. Say, well, I can't afford much. Go to Taco Bell together. I mean, you can afford a 99-cent burrito, right? <laughs> it's better to have a meal with someone than not because it builds those relationships. We're going to do... We're, the Lord's Supper part will take care of we do once a month here. The next thing is they made prayer a priority. They made prayer a priority. Also in verse 42, they not only broke bread, but in prayers. Jesus bathed everything in prayer. That's all we need to know. If he did it, you know we need it. Now, he didn't actually need to pray to have the power of God. He was the power of God. Make sense? <laughs> he didn't actually need to pray in one sense, but he had this relationship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, connection, that he was always in prayer because he was always in relationship with the Father, but it was also modeling for us. If he needed to do it or did it, we need to do it. There's something powerful about prayer. He said in his house that his house which now is the living church, he said in his house, it must be a house of prayer. Has to be. So any church that actually neglects prayer, and at times we have not prayed in this church as much as we should, and I've felt convicted for it, and we have to readjust that dial. You ever feel convicted in your personal life you're not in prayer like you should? 
Well, join the club. That's where the Holy Spirit says, hey, you've got a lot of time for this, 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 and this, but I don't see prayer. And so when we don't have prayer, we'll be subject to all kinds of other issues that will come in our life. Is prayer a priority in your life? And if it's not, we need to make it individually and as a collectively as a church uh, a priority. Are you gathering to the prayer meetings that we have here? We have, men's, we have ladies' prayer one Tuesday night a month. We have men's prayer after the Wednesday service. We have a corporate prayer this coming Wednesday. And I invite you, every corporate prayer, we're asking you to fast at least one meal the day. So this coming Wednesday, we'll be gathered to pray. Fast at least one meal. If you can fast two meals, go for it. If you can fast three, and by the way, don't tell anyone, say, I'm fasting today. Because then you'll lose any kind of reward for that. But we don't do it even for a reward. We do it to be powered, empowered by the strength of the Holy Spirit. I don't do it for a reward. I'm not expecting a reward in heaven for that. Whatever God does, he does. But I do need his strength and power. And that's why we fast and pray. Jesus said certain things will never happen until we fast and pray. If you've got a prodigal and you haven't ever fasted and prayed for that prodigal, that now is the time. Jesus would tell you this. If you said, hey, what do I do? We've got a prodigal. Jesus said, have you fasted and prayed yet? Well, no, I haven't done that. I'm, I'm hoping other people will do that. Well, other people will, and they can, their prayers can be powerful too, but we have to all participate in this house of prayer that God's called us to be. Number seven, they had a desire for holiness. How do we know this? Well, it says in verse 43, then fear came upon every soul. Now, this isn't the kind of fear that is a... Um, kind of some kind of paranoia. This isn't a fear that is a panic. This isn't a fear that is the kind of fear that grips people and they have to take prescription drugs or psychiatry and all that stuff. This is a different kind of fear. This is an awe and a respect of God. Do you have an awe and respect for God? I mean, do you look at him and say, I bow before you because you're the creator of heaven and earth and you sent your only begotten son, and I Fear you in an awe and respectful way that someday I will bow at your all-powerful feet. They knew that God was all-powerful and on the throne. And because of that, they had this desire for holiness. Where there's no fear of the Lord, there's no desire for holy living. No fear of the Lord, there's never going to be a desire for holy living. It'll be fleshly, it'll be prideful, it'll be hypocritical, it'll be self-centered motives. But where there's an awe and wonder of God and a respect and love for him and his authority in our lives, there'll be, a, there'll be a desire for purity and there'll be a desire for pure motives. Now, we need a desire for pure motives because it doesn't take but a couple of minutes for our motives jump back in the driver's seat, right? So we have to constantly have God purifying our motives. And his motives are that we would be holy. What is the main attribute of God? What do the angels say constantly in the throne room? Holy, holy, holy. The angels do not say love, love, love. They do not say good, good, good. They do not say gracious, gracious, great. Although all those are God's attributes, holiness falls upon the church when we recognize God for who he is, and they have a desire for it. The next one is they saw miracles in the works of God. Anyone want to see miracles in their life? I mean, really see them. I mean, truly, not just say, well, I heard about one in Afghanistan. Here, you want to see miracles. Well, where there's prayer and surrender and purity, there will be miracles and answered prayer. Miracles are birthed out of prayer, <laughs> holiness, purity, surrender. That's where miracles come from. God bestows them 
on a people in a church that has put themselves in the right position, the humble position to receive these things. So they saw miracles. They saw uh, apostolic works uh, of the early church. Now, we may not see some of the same apostolic works, but we still will see miracles. Amen? We can see them. And, and God, uh, we have seen some, and we want to see more. Next, they had a bond of believing, verse 44. Now, all who believed. We have on the back there that says, we believe. And you heard at the end of the video, I said, we believe God has great things in store. Do you believe that? For me, it's not just a slogan, because the first verse I wrote up there, and now we have three or four people have added and put the things you're praying for. John 20, 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Remind each other constantly to believe. If you hear someone doubting in your house and say, oh, this will never happen, spouse, say, be the one that comes alongside. I'm not talking about acting more spiritual. I'm saying, put your arm around and say, no, God can do this. Just saying that starts to change the way we think. Say, no, God can do this. Say, you know, so-and-so uh, got cancer. No, God can still heal them. Well, so-and-so lost their job. No, God can provide a better one, right? We have to believe. Well, I don't know if so-and-so will ever get saved. Do you realize how far away from God they are? No, say, God can reach the furthest people. We were the furthest people, amen? When I was living in Miami unsaved. My family thought I'd never come to Jesus. I thought I'd never. I, my, I, my dad would call and say, he'd say, if you're going to church, I'd say, there's no Christians here. I used to say that. I honestly believe there was no Christians in South Florida. I don't know where I got that idea. Satan gave it to me. So there's no Christians here. Meanwhile, I'm walking past Christians that are probably praying for me, and I think there's none. You would feel that way in Vegas. You'd feel that way in New Orleans. There's certain cities where you just kind of feel like, there's no, but there's Christians there. We need to be believing. Next thing, they were known as being together and unified. Chesterfield County, Richmond needs to know that we are together and unified. You saw our video. I hope God, we're already a diverse church, but I hope he keeps making us more and more diverse. To the glory of God, we don't market it. We don't try for it. We simply say, God, send anyone and everyone and make, and Lord, as best you can, make us really different, but then make us one. Make us really different, and then make us one. You know, that, even the, you know, the backdrop there, where you see the stripes and different, they're different colors, but they're heading in the same direction. God wants to do that. He wants to blend, you know, he wants to take broken lives that were from all over the map and jigsaw puzzle them together into one beautiful picture. They were known as being together and unified. You know, the, the, when the Spirit was poured out there in Acts, there was people from all different nations there that day, and they all heard the gospel in their own language, and God stitched them all together. But they, they continued investment in fellowship and in growing together. And when they did that, it forms an unbreakable bond to the point that here's where it really gets good. You know, the Bible says love covers them all two sins. You can even step on each other's toes, and you will. You can even say something you shouldn't have said. Husbands, you've done it. Wives, you've done it. Church families have done it and gotten on each other's nerve, you can say things and then say you're sorry, and God heals it, and you're stronger after it. You know, certain broken bones are stronger once they reheal. The same is true in relationships. If you don't let it destroy, you'll actually be stronger. And they were known as being united and together. Jesus said, by this 
Well, all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. See, love overcomes disagreements. Love overcomes bad days. Love overcomes things that will come across our path. Love overcomes when someone didn't call and say they were supposed to be on the schedule. And the ministry leader still forgives them, right? Or the person that was supposed to be there doesn't show up. Someone else says, I'll jump in. But you don't hold a grudge over these things. They were together. Next one, number 11. This is in verse 45. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They were generous and giving. Now, we are a generous church. For Compassion for Christmas, we, we set a goal of we could bless 12 families. We ended up blessing over 20. I look forward to the day when that number is 50 to 100 and on, 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 we, on we go. We are a generous church, and yet we can become far more generous than we are. Would you agree with that? There's no... There's no limit to how generous you can become. Uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, became so generous that at, at, at one time, I don't remember how long this was, but there was a time when they were able to give 70, about, was there about 70%, about 70% of all the tithes and offerings that came in, they were able to give away. I don't know if that's ever happened in any other church that I've ever heard of. We're not even close to that. They were the same people as we were. And the people that first got saved there were a bunch of dirt poor hippies with Birkenstocks and flipping acid or whatever they were doing, right? And somehow, because their hearts were generous, God exploded the work. And all of a sudden, they had people that had money got saved, and they were generous people, and you didn't have to beat them up about tithes and offering and everything. They just were first fruit givers. And that was the early church. You don't, see the, you don't see anywhere in Peter's message, and let's get the thermometer out. Where's the giving these days, right? By the way, we don't pass an offering plate here. We, have two, but we don't talk about money that much here. But if the Holy Spirit is doing a work, people will not, you can't stop them. You know Moses, when they, many revival took place with the children of Israel. When Moses took up an offering for the tabernacle, he had to tell them to stop giving because they gave too much. I don't know many pastors that ever have this problem anymore in America. <laughs> Even though we're the, more, we're the most prosperous that at any time in world history, we're less giving now as a nation than at any other time. Strange how that works, huh? They had less and gave more. We have more and give less. Now, we're more generous than so-and-so, and we want to compare ourselves. But I'm not comparing ourselves to anybody else. I'm comparing ourselves to the generosity of Jesus who gave his life. Amen? Amen? So they were generous. They had a desire to give. We'll know when we've really grown, when we don't even have to ask for compassion for Christmas, when everyone says, we want to just start helping families, period, case closed. We're going to meet, we'll meet the need before anyone else knows about it. So we want to give. We want to be first fruit givers. You know, God desires that we, that we give a portion of everything to him. And a healthy church body is full of givers and first fruit giving. Uh, you know, John Wesley is the one that said, make all you can, save all you can, Give all you can. I hope God blesses you in this year in your work. I hope you get, if you do a job to get bonuses, I hope you get them. But I hope that you save for rainy days to help other people, and I hope you give faithfully to God. If you do, you'll be blessed. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That's good for us individually. That's good for us as a church. We can't move forward unless we're generous. Next one, number 12. They had corporate gatherings and smaller gatherings. What does that mean? Well, it says they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Just think right now, you're in the temple. 
and breaking bread from house to house. This is our corporate gathering. And then we have smaller gatherings that are ladies with ladies, men with men, Friday night fellowships. You can't go to every single thing. That's not the point. The point is that you participate in corporate gatherings, i.e. temple gatherings, but you also make a priority in your life to also be part of smaller gatherings because they flex two different muscles. If you worked your whole life and just did bench, if all you did was bench press, right? You can't play in the NFL just doing bench press. You've got to work the quads, right? Dif Ladies, if you only make the same meal for your family every night, it's going to be getting rough after a while, right? You know, they might like it, but hey, tacos after the 56th straight day in a row, this is really, you have to work different muscles. You have to have different things, right? So God does this, that uh, there is a purpose in congregational, and then there's a different purpose in relational. Bigger gatherings, smaller gatherings, the early church understood that both were important. Now, the next one in verse 46 also in verse 46 there, it says, and they uh, ate their food with gladness. Gladness. Am I around the right number there? Yes, they were joyful, yes. They were joyful. Christians have more reason to be glad and joyful than anybody else. Jesus said in John 15, he desired that our joy would be full. Psalm 122, 1, it says, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. God desires that we be joyful. Next one. They were praising God, verse 47. Praising God and always having favor with the people. Praising God is not only what he is worthy of, but here's something that praising God does, and this will help all of us. The more we do it, prayer does this too. The more we praise God, it destroys stress. It destroys anxiety. It destroys bitterness. It destroys fear. It destroys depression, it destroys discontent, it destroys ingratitude, it destroys self-pity, and the list goes on and on. Who wants to live with those things? Praising God grounds them into powder. I promise if we will walk on this, we will look back and have testimonies at the end of the year and say, these are some things I struggle. I want to do another fear and anxiety workshop in this church depression, I'm going to do another one. And I want to get a little more interactive and detailed. I haven't put it on the calendar yet, but last time I did it, we had a full group. It looked like a Wednesday night service. So I want to do another one because I think people are struggling with this. But prayer and praise will fit the bill. They're not a panacea like something. They actually work. But they take a little more time to actually do the job. But when the job is done, it's done right. How many of you want a job done right or you just want it done fast? You want it done right. This is what God does. The early church focused on what would actually give them long-term results. And then we see the last thing. This is the work that God does, verse 15. It's the 15th one, but verse 47. Praising God in favor with the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I said last year we saw more people, we saw more people saved here last year, more people baptized last year than any previous year. And that was just by God's grace. Thank you for your prayers, inviting people to church, all of those things. The early church saw far more than we did. Like they, now they, wouldn't, they wouldn't mock what we've seen because they would know that it's just, you know, God might bless 
you this much, you might bless someone else this much, but we're going to be thankful for either. However, the early church saw a tremendous amount of conversions, but they couldn't make people come to Christ, and we can't make people come to Christ. I don't, you and I can't make anyone come to Jesus. They couldn't create a harvest, and we can't create a harvest. But they were yielded, and if we're yielded and surrendered to Christ, although we can't create a harvest, we can prepare for rain. Amen? We can prepare for rain to fall, and then God will water what we keep planting. You know, this morning when I heard different people were sick, I'm sitting at home with no way to get to church. Um, yeah, other people weren't going to make it for different reasons, and I'm like, I immediately was reminded of the evangelist, true story, that God told him to go preach to a, a, a lumberjack yard. When he got there, there was no one there, so he preached the entire message to an empty lumberyard and he felt that God would still bless it. And little did he know that there was one guy who had to come back from the woods and was hiding behind the pile of lumber. And that guy got saved from his message. And then he led some more guys. And like four evangelists came out of that whole thing. So I said, Lord, if I get there today and everybody's sick, I'm going to share it as if there's no one here or one here or 50 here or 100 here. It doesn't matter. Because God blesses what we do in obedience. He couldn't care less how much we've done and said the most perfect right thing. If our hearts are right, he'll bless it. Amen?